next installment of the SUS News podcast series where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. Uh, this week, we have our guest Peter von Blyenberg from UBS International. Um, Peter's been around for a while. I, I've known Peter for a couple of years now. But uh, for the benefit of the audience, Peter, would you be uh, so kind as to give us a little bio about yourself, how you got involved with RPAS, and uh, kind of where you're at today? Okay, Patrick. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I'm a bit of a dinosaur. Uh, I go back to the 80s, uh, and I was I started my involvement with RPAS with the second experimental RPAS that went into service with the French Army, and that was actually deployed by the French Army uh, during the first Gulf War. So uh, that's uh, quite a long, uh, long time ago. Uh, after my uh, short industrial period with this uh, French RPAS, uh, I started the association, and that is somewhere in '87. Uh, so that's a good number of years to be in the industry. Uh, a couple. Now, um, oh, your involvement—you just kind of, uh, let's say. Stumbled on to the uh, RPAS that you were speaking about, or was it uh, something that you um, saw and said, "Hey, I want to be a part of this"? Or, or how, how did that come about? No, it was actually more more down to earth. Uh, at that time, uh, I was a independent uh, broker for various types of uh, military equipment, and. Um, one of my customers had this contract, uh, or one of my suppliers actually, had this contract with the French Army, and uh, he was not a systems man. And he asked me if I wanted to uh, get involved with him uh, from a system aspect. Uh, so uh, it was getting more and more difficult for me to uh, get paid by the the contractors for whom I sold the equipment, uh, they were getting uh, pinning uh, or penny pinching all the time, and it was more of a fight to get your money after the contract had been signed than getting the contracts. So that's when I changed my uh, uh, my the focus of my uh, professional life. What are you doing? Playing with bungees? Hmm. Yeah, well, I know that was a, a you have some colorful stories there, but uh, that might be a discussion for another day. Yeah. Uh, um, so you got a, uh, you became a part of this, and, and, and like I said, I've known you, I think, now since, uh, I don't know, I want to say 2007 or eight, but, um, you know, I, I've tried to uh, talk about kind of, you know, what you're doing over there in um, Europe with uh, UBS International. Uh, you've done tons of work. I talk to people um, a lot of the time. They say, oh, you know, I need information about this or I need information about that. Gee whiz, when, you know, when's the world going to do this? And uh, I always say, well, hey, you know, have you gone and checked out UBS International? Peter von Blyenberg, this guy's really, um, let's say, gathering a lot of in information. 
And I, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. I want to talk about uh, Our Past 2013. Um, I, that's one of the shows that I, I really like to hit. Unfortunately, I didn't make it this year. I had a lot of stuff going on. Um, it's a show you've been producing now for how many years? The the RPS. Uh, Fifteen. Fifteen years. Um, now you just uh, you just had the conference, and it was in uh, Brussels this year. Maybe you could uh, give the audience a, a, a synopsis of that that conference and what transpired. Okay, well, uh, uh, I'll do that. But before I do get into that, I'd like to take a step backwards uh, in time, okay. so the uh, perspective is clearly understood. Uh, the conference happened the week after the Paris Air Show. Now, the big event at the Paris Air Show for the Airpass world uh, was the remittance of the uh, European Airpass roadmap by the European Airpass steering committee uh, to the European Commission. Uh, at that little ceremony, there uh, we didn't delve into the depths of the roadmap. It was more a formalistic thing. Uh, however, the conference was uh, positioned the week after, so that industry could ask all the uh, the questions. So the uh, the roadmap uh, outlines uh, the framework within which. Uh, the European community is now going to be working relative to the incremental insertion of RPAS with a viable business case into non-segregated European airspace. So that's inserting into the existing and uh, ATM system uh, which obviously is going to be transformed with uh, the inputs of uh, Caesar Joint Undertaking, which is the equivalent to your American Next Gen. Okay. Now, within the what is the roadmap? The roadmap is a, a big framework in which uh, that has been put together by three groups, concentrating on three different aspects. First group was the regulatory group. The second group was the R&D group. The third group was the complementary measures group. Now, this was all made up of uh, experts chosen by the European Commission. And uh, as we went down the road of getting all of this ready, there was contact between the three groups, even though they produced three independent documents that are fused into the high-level framework documents of the, the RFAS roadmap. So uh, in this, we uh, identify the regulatory issues that have to be dealt with. We also identify who has to be involved in dealing with this. The same thing for the R&D required to make this insertion possible. So we're not talking about R&D uh, relative to the production of a new uh, RPAS. That's not the point at all. What is required to get 
currently existing RFS into uh, European airspace. So is that like uh, validation of the standards that you guys are working on? Is that, is that kind of what you mean by the R&D? Uh, no, not really. Uh, it's more like what uh, subsystems or systems <coughs> have to be developed to uh, make the insertion into the current and future ATM system possible. Uh, that can be on both sides. It can be on the RPAS side, it can be on the ATM side, but principally it's going to be on the RPAS side. So things like uh, uh, detect and avoid, uh, data links, uh, uh, all the issues surrounding that are part of that. But there can also be, uh, like I said earlier on in the discussion, this concerns RMPAS with a viable business case. It concerns RMPAS only for non-military applications. Now, what do I mean by non-military applications? It's aerial work commercial, aerial work non-commercial, aerial work corporate, and then governmental use of RPAS for non-military applications. So that could be uh, fire brigades, it can be police, it can be border guard, uh, it could also be the Ministry of Environment uh, looking for seals or looking for oil uh, polluters. <laughs> but each time it has to be based on a viable business case. That means that the flight hour cost has to be acceptable to the market. Now, what we have seen uh, during this entire process, which was preceded by uh, the European uh, UAS panel initiative, also launched by the uh, European Commission, we identified a whole bunch of activities already taking place. And this has grown expo exponentially. Uh, the majority of the commercial activities taking place are all being done with RPAS, with a mass, takeoff mass, of well below 25 kilos. The majority is actually being done uh, with a maximum mass below 7 kilos. And if you look at the types of airframes, it's principally uh, quadrocopters, hexacopters, octocopters, and relatively small fixed-wing aircraft. Uh, now this is all ongoing. Uh, they're out there and they're earning money. Uh, but if somebody comes to me and says, well, Peter, I've got this male uh, UAS that we want to use for ice flow monitoring. <coughs> well, that's not going to be acceptable. Mm -hmm. It will not get any priority because there there's no viable business case that you made for it. Right. Well, I, and I like the way that you're approaching this because, uh, you know, a lot of that I get over here. Uh, I've got a lot of the service contractors will call me and say, hey, you know, we want, we're writing up a business plan for... Um, Agriculture, and that sounds good, you know. Um, and I'll ask, well, what systems are you do you, do you want to use, or do you propose to use? And I'll hear something like Shadow, uh, which to me it's kind of like mm, that's kind of a non-starter. 
but but it also seems over here that when when we're doing stuff like that, um, we will start off with the the conversation, and it'll be about five minutes on the smaller systems, and then we jump right back up into the uh, big systems, and people start talking about business plans for these uh, larger military systems. So you're you're trying to cut that that off right from the gate. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And uh, the other thing that I can add is that. Um, if you uh, now, I'm going to jump back to something that happened at the conference. Okay. We had a presentation by uh, Yamaha Motors. Mm -hmm. RMAX manufacturer, correct? Now those guys uh, are really, really organized. Uh, today there are 2,400 RMAX flying in Japan, commercially. Wow. There are 14,000 registered and approved pilots. Uh, they have service centers all over Japan. They have training centers all over Japan. And all of this is Yamaha. Uh, as some of your of the uh, listeners will probably know, you could not buy a Yamaha RMAX without following the training that comes with it. That's smart. I think that's, that's smart. Really, really smart. Now, uh, the this is obviously a viable business model because otherwise they wouldn't sell so many RMAXs and you wouldn't have so many pilots. Now, did, did, did they uh, talk about, uh, because, you know, really, I mean, some people know about the, the Japanese thing. You'd be surprised how many people over here in the United States have no, I mean, I'm talking no idea that uh, commercial operations are, let's say, uh, going on or legal in other countries. And and you may say, wow, that's amazing. How, how, could, you, how could you not know? But... Um, for some reason, the Americans kind of, we have a, sometimes we're a little bit of a, a myopic view of the world and uh, what's going on here in the United States. And some people that you would think should know this don't know this. So I, I want to expand on that, but I want to ask you a couple of questions, and maybe you know the answers and maybe you don't. But one of them would be, do, do we know what the RMAX goes for? Uh, I'm not mentioning prices in any any of the work that I do. Okay. Well, I was just kind of curious because I, I do believe, I mean, I've seen the, the system and it's very robust and I and uh, Yamaha having a training program is almost guaranteeing success with their uh, aircraft. Um, so with these operators that you're talking about, these 14,000 operators, these, these are obviously like professional level salaries that these people are, are, are making. Safe to assume? Uh, yes, but you have to be very careful. Uh, this is a Japanese model. Uh, this is not an American or European model. So the majority of these RMAXs uh, belong to uh, a one-man operation uh, that maybe does it with his son. And uh, this way they keep the costs down. Uh, they do it in the region where they live. So uh, a guy who's established in southern Japan will not try to get work in northern Japan. Mm -hmm. um, it is not a, a type of work that is done continuously over the entire year. We're talking about insecticide uh, spraying. 
We're talking about fertilizer spraying and pellets dispensing. Um, all of this is being done at low altitude uh, and it's all done in visual line of sight. And that brings me back to what is happening in Europe where all the current operations legally taking place in Europe are all in visual line of sight. Now what does that mean? It means that the maximum flight altitude is below 500 feet. It means that the maximum horizontal distance between the pilot and the aircraft is 500 meters. Now, for many people, uh, that means they say, well, that's not sexy, and uh, I want to fly out of, out of beyond line of sight. Uh, well, you can do that tomorrow. Today, this is what you can do. And what a lot of these guys in, on our side of the Atlantic didn't want to see in the beginning was that irrespective of what type of flight envelope you use, the objective at the end is earning money. Mm -hmm. Now, you can earn a hell of a lot of money in visual line of sight. As long as you're not, you don't follow the, the, the technician and the uh, engineer syndrome uh, wanting to tackle difficult things because it's nice. Right. That's not the objective. Well, that, and I think that uh, you know people have to be realistic. And, and those are some of the the complaints that I've heard over the years. One of them, one of them is what you're talking about, the flight envelope. But I think people have to understand that uh, you know you're going to have to start somewhere. You have to start somewhere, and you're going to have to build some credibility as an industry, and that visual line of sight or visual VLOS envelope is the place to start. The other one, and I don't know if you guys are tackling this, is, is the definition of autonomous. Uh, well, that, that's very simple. Uh, let's lay that to bed right now. Let's do it. Throw away the word autonomous. It does not exist. It has been banned from the ICAO parlance. It is not used. Nobody has any autonomous aircraft at the moment. And don't forget, we're talking about non-military applications here. Right. We have pre-programmed aircraft that can follow automatically a pre-programmed route. There is no decision power whatsoever on the aircraft and in the systems that we're using at the moment. Bingo. Now, another thing with this, uh, you know, and the and the RPAS nomenclature is that there's always um, a human in the loop that, that yep. can take over control of the aircraft should there be a, let's say, intrusion in, in the airspace or any other issues. That, that's correct, right? Absolutely. Okay, well, and I think you, you, that's a, a really uh, concise definition because a lot of people believe that their aircraft are fully autonomous. And I hear this all the time, and, uh, you know, everybody's making up their own definition of autonomous. Well, I, I click the switch, I take off, I click the switch, and then it's fully autonomous and does everything. You know, is it learning? Is it making its own decisions? Uh, well, no, it's not doing that. Okay, well, then just as you said, it's a pre pre-programmed um Let's say flight. So yeah. perfect. I, I like that definition. I agree with that definition, and I agree with the the, the V loss definition. And that's part of 
something that came out of the show, but let's step back and talk about the the, the conference a little bit more, the uh, RPAS 2013. Now, some you've alluded to things that have or talked about some things that have come out of that conference, and and I'd like to give people a, a uh, let's say a better view of that conference. This isn't just like a meet and greet where people come together. You, you guys are really talking about policy and uh, nomenclature, classifications, uh, things along these lines. Could you expand on that, please? Sure. Uh, so the uh, the big thing uh, of the moment was the, the ERPAS roadmap. Now, don't forget that the ERPAS roadmap, and I, probably I should exclaim because it's not always clear for people outside of Europe what the European Commission is. The European Commission is equivalent, if you want, between brackets, to the European government. You have ministries in a government, or as you say, departments. Uh, in the European Commission, they're called director generals. Now, all the entire roadmap was coordinated, first of all, instigated by the Director General of um, Enterprise and Industry. Uh, it was done in very close coordination with the Director General of Mobility and Transport. Now, Enterprise and Industry, why are they interested? They're interested because we were able to prove during the uh, European uh, UAS panel initiative that RPAS could create jobs. Uh, and that's the basis of everything. If you have a viable business case for something and you can create jobs, then you get political sign-off. So all of this is governed by politics. So industry and enterprise and industry was there. Mobility and transport was there. Research was there. Uh, and I can name a whole bunch of others. Now, during the conference, the two major DGs, enterprise and industry, mobility and transport, were up for questions. They uh, explained their view on the roadmap uh, from an industry point of view and from a transport point of view. And then open for questions. Uh, very open, in public, anybody could ask anything, and uh, if you don't agree with something, you better have a good reason for not agreeing. Uh, because otherwise, uh, you're torn to bits. And this is the beauty of having something in total transparency. Um, a few very interesting things came up. Uh, one of them had to do with insurance. Mm -hmm. And uh, I made a very clear point of explaining to the people in the audience that if you're an aerial work operator, you're using an aircraft. If you're using an aircraft, be it manned or unmanned, it is mandatory to have an insurance. Right. If you don't have an insurance, 
Well, you're running an enormous risk, uh, and that could be a penal risk also. It's not only the risk of the, the damage that you, that you could do, but you, you yourself have a penal risk. Uh, if you're caught in France, for example, flying illegally, and that can mean that you don't have the approval from the Civil Aviation Authority, it could mean that you're not insured, it could mean a whole bunch of things. But the fine there is 75,000 euro and or one year in prison. That's pretty substantial. But that should keep down on the uh, the black market or in the closet, guys, like we have here, which is it's pandemic here. Well, we, we have it also here. Um, and this is why uh, I focused quite a bit of attention on the insurance bit, because there are other obligations. If you are uh, an aircraft operator, by law, you are obliged to report incidents and accidents. And of course, at the moment, this is not happening. First of all, because the structure to do that doesn't exist. Secondly, uh, a small operator doesn't want to uh, flag up that he's crashed his, uh, his thing, possibly flying illegally. Hmm. Now, uh, within the roadmap, the, uh, the importance of insurance was uh, identified, and uh, the, this was done together with the insurance companies. And uh, we have now, in discussion with the insurance companies, come to the conclusion that uh, industry, and that's, uh, that's the insurance company as a service supply industry, and it's also the operators together have to uh, define uh, an accident and incident reporting scheme that has to be implemented European-wide. That means that the same form that you use to uh, report an incident or an accident in UK is also used in Spain and Italy. What we're looking at now is uh, forming a group of uh, operators on one side of the table and insurance companies on the other side of the table to tackle this problem, come up with uh, a proposed form. In a second stage, this proposed form will then uh, go out for comment from industry, and again, the same type of industry. So now. We're talking about operators and we're talking about insurance companies. Once we have the form ready, then we go to uh, the European Commission, DG Mobility and Transport, and then it filters down into the European Aviation Safety Agency to see if they agree with all of this. This reporting will then have to be done on a national level and all the national level reporting will then have to feed into a central database where all the forms will be uh, available online and where statistics will be made. Because the insurance companies do not want to deal with 27 different countries. They want one centralized uh, place 
where you can get all the information. And that information should be the same for every single insurance company. So this is uh, one of the uh, stumbling blocks that has to be overcome. Uh, but right next to it, there will also be, uh, most probably, and I hope it w it's going to come about quickly, um, a website where you can identify if an operator is indeed insured or not. So that the customer who is contracting for the flight services can do his due diligence and see if what the operator is telling him is actually true. Right. So that the the contracted the purpose that contracted service was going to uh, be able to indemnify themselves from liability by making sure that the, the person or company is who they say they are. Absolutely. And uh, what was uh, explained very clearly at the conference is that if you're a small operator and uh, you don't have the money to pay uh, third-party liability because you're, you're not insured, then they're going to go after somebody else. Right. The insurance companies are not going to give up. And this is a whole pyramid. There are all kinds of people out there that they can go after. And this is something that is totally misunderstood or not understood by the current operators. Right. So there has to be a substantial amount of education, uh, dual directional, as always. Right, and, and, and you are hitting on an, another uh, fantastic point, and I think that that's one of the issues over here that I've been talking about, and over here, I mean, in the United States, for uh, several years, is really the, the way that things are set up now. Uh, there is no real education for uh, the operators. Uh, the people that are out there operating illegally, and a lot of them think, you know, that they can, oh, well, you know, I don't charge for the aerial photography. I charge for retouching or, you know, I sell coffee mugs or whatever, which is, I, I just don't even get it. It's absurd. But uh, there is that issue, one. Two, a lot of these people are not aviation people, even like myself. I'm not an aviation person. However, um, I realize that there's got to be rules of the road with the airspace. Uh, and, and we have to think about that. And then also the insurance part of it. A lot of people don't believe they need insurance, which is a, a big mistake. I keep telling people if you have a mishap and, God forbid, something happens, um, they will come for you. Um, and, and that's going to be an issue. Um, and then the other thing, and I don't know if this is quite as prevalent over there as it is here, we have uh, every Tom, Dick, and Harry is a manufacturer of unmanned aircraft. And they believe that because a lot of this stuff is, is cobbled together or ordered off the Internet or I downloaded my code for my autopilot off the Internet, I am indemnified from product liability. Forget it. <laughs> is that crazy talk or what? Totally. I, I don't even know where this absurdity comes from. Um, I don't know if it's part of the prevalence of the medicinal marijuana thing over here or where it came from. <laughs> I've never heard of anything so absurd in all my life. But anyway, you, do you uh, have the same issues over there where people think that they're indemnified from product liability? Or do you think they have a better grasp on the, on the business side of this? Well, uh, it's going to be forced down their throats. Uh, because 
what is now going to be uh, coming law in Europe uh, thanks to uh, the roadmap, and it's all been charted out. Your, uh, your equipment, your aircraft, has to have an airworthiness certificate. Your pilot has to be approved, has to be certificated. As an operator, you have to be certificated. Uh, now, if you miss one of those three, you are not legally operating. Now, being a pilot, uh, an approved pilot, is not only a question of being able to fly your uh, your Arterpass uh, next to a windmill or in a straight line. There is also a theoretical knowledge that you need. Mm -hmm. uh, all that is going to be harmonized over Europe. Uh, now, that's not going to be an easy task because we already have legislation in place relative to uh, RPAS use for civil commercial applications in countries like France, UK, uh, Czech Republic, uh, <clears throat> Ireland. Uh, it's upcoming in Italy, in Spain, in the Netherlands, in Norway. There's it's totally sorted out in Sweden. Uh, Denmark is coming. Germany is coming. So it, it, it's all over the place. But all of these nations have national rules. What we're working towards now is harmonizing all these na uh, national rules and coming to a common regulation so that you actually have an open European market so that an operator uh, registered in Belgium can uh, take a job in Germany and vice versa. Right. Now, we saw that in, um, uh, and that was a, a story we also ran, uh, was where that uh, German company, I believe it was a German company or Austrian company, went to the U.K., and uh, did that commercial job where they basically flew the swarm of um, quadcopters in the symbol of the Star Trek symbol over uh, London at night. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I use that as an example, even with um, some folks that are in our uh, aviation authority, that what's going on in Europe, that you can go ahead and you can do this. A company from another country can go to another country, do this under the legal uh, blessing of the Civil Aviation Authority, make money. Um, and do things. Uh, I, I thought it was kind of funny. Is is one day we we're running that story uh, about that in 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 London, which Heathrow is the third busiest airport on the planet. And then the next day we're running a story here in the United States that we're going to fly one um, small unmanned aircraft system in restricted airspace. Kind of a, um, I think it's a sobering um, story for the U.S. How far behind we are on on anything like's going on over there. Well, let me throw some figures at you, Patrick. Please do. France, uh, they put their uh, their first ever RPAS regulation into law in April 2012. December. 2012, there were 80 approved operators. We go to April 
2013. These 80 have become 189. We're now in the beginning of July. We're at 260. Wow. So this is a, a, a gigantic growth. We go to UK. There's 200 approved operators commercial in UK. There's 12 of them in Ireland, 140 in Sweden. And we don't uh, we, we don't have any legal commercial operators over here. Some will contend that they are, but uh, we we're, we're not uh, we're not doing that. So it sounds like. Um, the uh, Civil Aviation Authority is working with the commercial community and what, whatever you guys are doing over there is working. It, it's, it's building on itself. Yes, uh, but there's a, a very uh, major difference okay. that I, I should highlight. Yes. Um, if you uh, take a small country like the Netherlands, where I come from, how did it all get started there? There was one, uh, one manufacturer of a, uh, an RPAS system that, uh, after a lot of bashing, uh, finally understood that it was in his interest to certify his system. So he wrote an official letter to the uh, National Civil, Avi uh, Civil Aviation Authority and the National Civil Aviation Authority, receiving an official letter, had to give an official reply. And the official reply was, we don't have the rules in place, we don't have the standards in place to certify your system, but come and see us. The end result was that the National Civil Aviation Authority together with this manufacturer, produce the basis of a regulation. That regulation has now gone to a higher stage where uh, JARIS, which is a grouping of uh, the National Civil Aviation Authorities of a whole bunch of countries, uh, have all agreed that they will jointly work on uh, RPAS regulation uh, to avoid duplication of effort, uh, stay lean but be mean, and be faster. And what was started in the Netherlands as uh, a service for one manufacturer has now gone to all these countries. The document, the, uh, the final draft of the document I was open for uh, comments on the JARA's website. They're now incorporating all these comments, and then there will probably be a new comment period of the revised document. But all of this started in a small country with one small manufacturer asking to be certificated. So this is slightly different from what is happening in the U.S. That uh, that is true. Uh, the other thing is, uh, when was this started? Maybe just as a frame of reference. Uh, 
let's see, this goes back, if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, four years. Because that's another issue that that we're, we're having over here. Um, you know, we've we've been at this for a long time. Uh, the arc, even the U.S. <coughs> arc, has been over for four years. Um, you know, RTCA has been going on for many years. ASTN's been going on for many years, and we're not really seeing light at the end of the tunnel. Let's say on the standards work over here, and it's very hard for. Um, smaller companies to participate in these types of, of, of standards groups for these types of years. I mean, I just uh, actually ran across uh, the material that I was given at the ASTM meeting for, in 2005, and I pulled that out of the uh, the basement, and I'm going to reread that and go over the timelines, but I, it, it's just so hard to, to stay part of the effort for that long. Um, and not see the light at the end of the tunnel like you uh, you guys are starting to see over there in Europe. So the small manufacturers and the small producers um, are, are seeing a value in, in participating in this. Is that the feedback you're getting from the, uh, the conference? Um, let me phrase it in another way. Uh, in the uh, the drawing up of the uh, the RPAS roadmap, the European roadmap, we came to the conclusion that uh, by far the majority of uh, currently ongoing and or anticipated viable applications for RPAS was with small aircraft. Uh, we want to, uh, and that is a political uh, wish, we want to uh, show that uh, things are moving and avoid companies going bankrupt because they can't sell anything because there aren't any rules. Right. And, if there, and if there aren't any rules, your operators will not buy anything because they can't fly. Right. So. What we're looking at is minimal uh, certification, maximum safety. Um, we're, this means that we're probably not going to go for full-blown certification for a little quadrocopter that uh, weighs two or three kilos. It doesn't make any sense. Right. However, we have to uh, have to have some kind of system to evaluate uh, the worthiness of the system and the safety of the system. And uh, we're trying to do that in such a way that the obstacles to getting into the business are as low as possible. So, and that makes sense because all of the things that you're talking about are things that we're suffering from here. If you are a uh, manufacturer or small business guy or end user, there are no legal income streams. So you're, nope. you're basically, uh, you can't make any money, but you're expected to participate. And I, I don't know how you're going to participate with no money. You know? mm. um, and so it doesn't really sound or feel like there. this is an inclusive effort. One, 
um, because those people, like you said, they, they can't make any money, so how are they supposed to do this? Are they supposed to go out and get a loan so they can participate? Um, I don't know, or print money in the basement. I don't know. But um, the, the other thing with this uh, roadmap, so are you coming up uh, as with, let's say, the data that needs to be validated for the safe operation, or is it just uh, something that we're going to take incremental steps, or, or how is that working, combination of the two? Uh, it, we're, we're looking at uh, doing simple operations in the beginning. Uh, what do I mean by simple operations? If you've got a, um, uh, a wind turbine, mm -hmm. uh, the blades of the wind turbine have to be checked on a regular basis. Uh, because if there are cracks in there, these things go at, chunks could fly off and hurt people. But secondly, you could also uh, damage the turbine itself. So this is part insurance of the turbine operator. He has to inspect. Right. You can do that with a little quadrocopter. Uh, you're going to fly the maximum horizontal distance of uh, 20, 25 meters. Uh, it's going to go up and down, up and down. Very simple operation. Another simple operation is flare stack ins uh, inspection, where, again, for insurance purposes, the, the funnel at the top of the flare stack has to be inspected once or twice a year. So at the moment, what are they doing? They're, they're sending people up. Now, to send people up there, you have to close down the flame, right. which, which means that you're out of production. So uh, you don't have to close down the flame uh, using a little quadrocopter. That is all being done today. Uh, it, these are not sexy operations, but they're possible. By doing this type of operation, and collecting the flight data, uh, we can evaluate the maturity of the engines being used. We can uh, see what kind of interference in what type of operation takes place. Uh, so a major part is going to be to gather all this information because once again, the insurance companies are going to be evaluating all of this to be able to come out with a reasonably priced premium. And they, they're not going to suck this out of their, out of their thumb. It's going to, it has to be based on hard facts. Right. So the data collection is, uh, is very important. And uh, as we get to bigger aircraft, it becomes even more important. But it's an incremental learning curve uh, for the, uh, the manufacturing community, the operating community, and the regulators. Hmm. Well, that's, uh, that's, yeah, that sounds pragmatic to me. Um, I guess, um, you know, uh, th that's a really interesting uh, way to work it because it sounds like that should be able to, that should work pretty well. Um, now, we're almost out of time, and uh, but I, I do want to give people the opportunity to, um, you know, let's say, 
come to your website, learn more about this. Uh, could you please give us the website? Yeah, it's uh, UVS, Uniform Victor Sierra, dash info.com. And uh, the things to look for, most of the stuff that I've mentioned can be found under European Matters in the main menu bar. Um, something that we haven't touched on that you can also find there is the Operators Survey. Now, that's a survey that we're launching uh, worldwide. It's not only for Europeans. And the idea here is to uh, be able to produce statistics on what type of operations are taking place, with what type of equipment, for what type of duration, at what altitude, uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, all the, the, everybody can participate. The form is up there. You can fill it in online. Uh, everybody who um, participates in the survey will receive the final statistics. The personal details supplied, the contact details supplied, as indicated on the forms, uh, will not be communicated, not even to the regulators. Okay. So we're using only the statistics. I like that. So you're you're actually uh, you're interested in collecting data. Um, it, how's the uh, feedback been thus far? Well, the first time we did it uh, in 2012, uh, we did not get uh, sufficient input uh, to draw uh, statistics that are worthwhile. <clears throat> there was something like 65 uh, uh, inputs supplied, and that's not enough. Uh, we have to go into the hundreds. Right. Uh, and is that, is that um, let's say, some of the, um, the the new things that you described, uh, like, you know, uh, being anonymous and things like that? Is that where that came from, you're trying to capture more people? No, that was the same thing with the, the first survey. Uh, but what has now caught on is the uh, business potential for operators. Uh, that all has come about over the last or become clearer and clearer to the community out there uh, over the last eight months. And uh, we're seeing uh, operators uh, jump up like mushrooms in a forest all over the place. And uh, the, the biggest growth that we're going to see is on that side of the fence. It's the operators. We're not going to see all of a sudden an explosion of uh, manufacturers of equipment. We're going to see an explosion of operators. Mm -hmm. Now, the operators at the moment are still not, uh, they don't form uh, their own stakeholder group. Uh, this has to be done. They have to be given a, a voice uh, in the process of the implementation of the roadmap. So by doing this survey, we are not only looking at the statistics, but we're also trying to gather information on who is out there, who is part of this community, so that we can help them come together and uh, form common opinions. Right. Well, and that definitely needs to be done. Uh, I think there's a lot of that, especially here, is a lot of a kind of a maverick 
type of uh, mindset, and a lot of people I have found are afraid to talk about their operations, uh, you know, not really so much the, let's say, getting in trouble, but also they believe that uh, a lot of their operation is it's kind of like a secret sauce, and the way they do things, they don't want to give that away. However, I would encourage people to um, go to the website and do this uh, survey, because I think it's going to behoove you in, in the future. I think things will... Uh, this will help us also in the future. I mean, uh, I, I point to the work that's going on uh, over there in Europe all the time and say, well, geez, you know, they figured out how to do, um, you know, airspace separation. Or they have figured out how to do these operations. And again, it may not be ideal uh, operating envelopes for everyone. However, you can at least go out there and make some money and support yourself. As Absolutely. Now, the, the, what was really interesting also at the uh, at the conference was the um, comparison between the type of aerial work being done in Japan with the Armaxes and what is possible in the same flight envelope also for agricultural purposes in Europe. And uh, one of the things that jumped out at everybody was the vineyards. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the, in many cases, they're relatively small plots, very difficult to get to, cannot be uh, handled with manned helicopters because it's too expensive, too noisy, and uh, half of the stuff they're spraying goes uh, on the other side of the fence with the neighbor's vineyard. Right. So uh, these things are now going to be looked at and have already been looked at in a number of countries. But the other thing that was really interesting was um, there's an organization called uh, the European Spatial Data Research Group. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, this group uh, federates the European National Mapping Agencies. And uh, these guys have clearly understood the advantage of using RPAS. Uh, have done experiments with them and have come to maps, producing maps that are unbelievably precise and can be done in uh, a time span which is incomparable with the normal mythology that they were using up until now. Now, it cannot be used for everything, but it can be a fantastic time saver for quite a few applications in the, the mapping world. So one of the things that we're, we're looking at uh, in uh, the implementation of this roadmap is finding existing user groups, stakeholder groups, and making giving them a, vo a voice in what is going to be done. Right, so, right not reinventing the wheel, uh, there are many uh, groups out there, uh, they just don't know that they're potential RPAS operators. Right, and, and, and I think that's the promise of the technology really is uh, the efficiency and productivity that it can add to almost uh, any business, uh, existing business sector. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm really, I believe that they're, they're there's so many out there that we will not know about until we have 
uh, common sense regulation. And then I think this thing's really going to mushroom, probably like it's mushrooming over there. People are like, hey, wait a minute, I can use this for this. So, yep. um, you know, I look forward to, to hearing more about that. And I appreciate your time today, uh, Peter, coming on the show all the way from uh, beautiful Paris. I'm sure it's nice over there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But uh, I appreciate you coming on, and I appreciate you uh, in, enlightening uh, the uh, podcast audience, um, giving us a, a view into what's going on over there, and uh, also some hope because uh, you know I really believe the work that you guys are doing and and the IKO exposure and everything else is going to have to um, let's say come over here with the cross pollinization, and I look forward to that. I want to thank you again. Well, before I, I buzz off, uh, Patrick, uh, I'd just like to mention that this is not happening only in Europe. Uh, there's uh, Australia is well advanced, uh, much further than Europe. Uh, but things are also starting in Russia, in Brazil, in India, uh, in China. Um, now, in all those countries, uh, we are uh, helping the national authorities in the field of regulation uh, by making it possible for them to avoid the mistakes that others have already made. So this, this plays into the Jairus group and it plays into the traveling circus that I go to these countries um, where uh, we're not doing this for the money uh, because there's there's not really much money in it uh, in spreading the gospel but if we want to have a global safe airspace uh, everybody has to understand what that means and all these budding countries have to be involved have to be educated and that's part of our what we see as part of our task well, we appreciate the hard work that you're doing. Um, again, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show. And uh, maybe we can catch up on that in the fall when things kind of die down a little bit. Maybe we can talk about uh, some of these. I know that uh, you, you help produce these shows uh, in other countries, and maybe we can talk about that come uh, come the fall. Right. And the last thing I'd like to give your your listeners is, for God's sake, speak the same language Learn the terminology. Don't just use any words. You're part of aviation now. And in aviation, there is a very clear terminology that is defined, that has to be used. Uh, I, I see in magazines all over the place, they're using all kinds of terms. They're not the right terms. So uh, try and stick to the correct terms. Uh, God, as far as terms are concerned, is ICAO. Nobody else. That's good advice. All right. Well, that's all for today. Thank you again, Peter, um, for coming on, and we will be talking to you soon in the future. Thank you, Patrick. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.